Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. This episode is brought to you by The Review Planner. For many of us, performance review season is about to begin. For many of us, it's also a challenge to remember all of the things that we've done during the year. So what happens is our performance reviews become a one-way conversation where our managers are telling us what they think we did during the year And without proof of our performance, it becomes incredibly hard for us to advocate for that raise, promotion, or new position that we know we deserve. So I created the review planner because I always wanted a tool like this, a systematic way to track all of our career accomplishments that are specifically tied to the feedback and growth areas that our managers are measuring our success by. The review planner helps you create a schedule for your career growth, and it makes it easy to focus on the goals that you have throughout the year. With email templates, monthly checklists, built-in accountability and reminders, the planner keeps you on track to accomplish your goals and ensures you are spending your time on the things that actually move your career forward. I designed the review planner to help you focus on your career and prepare for your annual review so you can confidently speak up for yourself and earn what you deserve. To learn more about the review planner, head to thereviewplanner.com. Again, that's thereviewplanner.com. In this episode, you meet TT Cole. TT is the head of operations and fraud prevention and the chief client officer for City's Global Consumer Bank. In this role, she is responsible for delivering a seamless client experience across service channels, deploying cutting-edge fraud prevention technology and enhancing productivity. TT also serves as a global diversity and inclusion champion for the Global Consumer Bank, leading several key diversity initiatives, including increasing representation of women in underrepresented groups across the business. A 27-year veteran of the financial services industry, TT joined City from Wells Fargo, where she was the head of consumer and small business banking operations and contact centers after previously leading shared services for consumer credit solutions in support of consumer lending businesses. She also served as a member of Wells Fargo's management committee. Previously, TT led retail products and underwriting for Bank of America with responsibility for the consumer credit card, debit and checking businesses, credit card underwriting and fulfillment, and the Enterprise Payments Network Group. She has also held leadership roles at BMO Harris Bank in Chicago and McKinsey and Company. TT earned a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Ibada, Nigeria, and an MBA from Northwestern's University's Kellogg School of Management. TT serves on the board of trustees for communities and schools and for Queens University of Charlotte. Now, I was extremely excited to talk to TT just because she's an immigrant like me. Um, she also, if you look her up, um, on the internet, which I did prior to our interview. Um, She's had some really high profile roles and has done some amazing things um, within the financial services industry, within banking. And it's known as a historically male dominated um, industry. And so I was excited to talk to, to a woman, a black woman, an immigrant black woman about what it's like to sit in that seat. And I think that the level of openness and transparency that you'll get in this interview is something that um, is really refreshing. So as always, grab your I Choose the Ladder notebook, your favorite pen, and your beverage of choice and get ready to get to work. Titi, thank you so much for saying yes to being on the podcast. Um, I've been reading about you. I am now an official member of the Titi fan club. Um, And so really, really happy to have you with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me, and and you're way too kind. Uh, (laughs) I'm excited about being on this podcast and and helping reach your audience. 
Um, so the first question, I know that like myself, you are an immigrant um, and um, wanting to know how did you come to be aware of corporate America in the way that it is in America and know that it was something that you could potentially pursue? Yeah, so I was I was very fortunate because I grew up in um, Ibadan, Nigeria, but I was born in Ithaca, New York. Um, my parents were in grad school at Cornell and, and kind of worked in the States before moving back to Nigeria, which is where they're from. Um, and, and so as a result of that, we were we lived in Nigeria, but visited quite often. Um, and then most of my father's siblings were in the U.S. during graduate school or medical school or law school. So, so even though we were growing up in Nigeria, pretty close ties to the U.S. just mm -hmm. from being born in New York and then having extended family here. Um, and then with an econ undergrad, uh, my very first job was in banking in Lagos, Nigeria. And, and if I looked at the founders of the bank, he was one of those new age banks, Guarantee Trust Bank. If I looked at the founders of the bank and the senior managers, they all had um, some level of experience in America, either from graduate education or having worked in you know, chemical bank or, or some of the earlier banks um, in the 80s. And mm -hmm. so being in the banking sector, I think gave me a broader exposure to kind of the global banking sector. Mm -hmm. um, and and then the typical path was, okay, it's time to get an MBA. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and as you can imagine, and I think even more so today, um, America is still viewed as, and I think is still one of the best places to get a graduate education. And so it was researching, you know, what were the top grad schools, doing my GMAT, which I did in Lagos. And, um, oh. and, then, and then coming over here to um, work for a year actually at the Northern Trust and then go to Kellogg. Got it. When I hear the dream at, I'm so traumatized. I remember sitting <laughs> studying for it because I'm at Booth. And so just thinking about that test immediately takes my mind to a place where I'm like, no, no, GMAT. Yeah, the GMAT. You, not, well, now I hear like to be in the 90 something percentile, you have to score like seven something. It was it, the, the percentiles were a little easier back then. Let me just leave it at that. <laughs> Uh, but I, I got the books when I traveled on a summer and then came back to Nigeria and studied and, and did my testing in Lagos because they had international test centers, which was helpful. So you chose an industry that's not known for being very female or very diverse. How did you decide like, hey, of all the things, of all the career choices, of all the industries, this is where I feel like my impact would be the best? Yeah, so, so, you know, in some ways I stumbled onto it growing up in Nigeria, coming out of undergrad in 92 uh, with an econ degree, you didn't really have the broad range of industry choices, quite frankly, that I've had maybe if I graduated in the States. It was coming out of a, with any kind of business degree, you were either going to go to um, back and go to like law school or you were going to work at a bank, or you were going to work with an oil company. Um, they were, or, or like a conglomerate, like Unilever or, or PNG, right? So, so there were kind of, you know, maybe four or five options. And um, and the banking sector had just been uh, private, has just had just been privatized um, in Nigeria, and so you had all these new age banks being founded by mm -hmm. more progressive uh, leaders who were leveraging technology and, and very focused on hiring young talent. So it was mm -hmm. actually and still is a booming industry um, in Nigeria for people with a business undergrad. So it was kind of that implicit choice in some ways. Mm -hmm. I do think though that I made a more explicit choice um, after I came out of business school, I chose to go to McKinsey and did six years in management consulting with a view of, you know, learning about different industries 
And even though I was learning and, and experienced different industry, I found very quickly that the industry that actually resonated most with me was actually financial services. One, because I was a consumer of the, of the services. And two, having grown up um, in Lagos, Nigeria and Ibada, Nigeria, where access to financial services is still a challenge where mm -hmm. you know, people have to save for years to be able to build a house, where you know, for a small business, access to credit is, is a major issue. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I recognize that being in that industry, I could impact lives and create more access for others. And then I thought back then, export those talents actually right back to Africa because the banking sector was still blooming. So it was really about the purpose, especially on the consumer side of what we do, providing access to credit, helping people save for the future so they can retire someday, so they can invest and create generational wealth. Mm -hmm. That level of impact on hundreds of millions of people that the industry provides is really what has attracted me to the industry, you know, almost 30 years now and has kept me in the industry till today. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember talking to my dad. So I'm from Liberia and we went, I went back for the first time in um, 2019. And I was asking my dad, I'm like, well, can't they just take out a mortgage? And he's like, yeah, that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. That's not how it works over here. Like you save and what you can afford to build and purchase is the house that you, that's the quality of the house that you live in. And I remember being really fascinated, like, how is that still, but you know, the banking system and the ways that you know, the development is just very different um, at a different uh, pace, um, which I did not know. Yeah, and it's, it's accelerated now, but you still generally have to be super connected or actually super wealthy to be able to access lending, which kind of defeats the purpose, but it's really collateralized lending, right? So, mm -hmm. so it's not like you're just out of college and somebody's going to give you a loan. You typically have either somebody who's a guarantor or somebody else putting collateral for a mm -hmm. consumer to get a loan. So you just mm -hmm. think about the level of, um, of business creation, the level of access to opportunity that's suppressed because you actually have to be able to afford to access financial services mm. um, in a lot of developing countries. And, and then you think about what we have here and the opportunity to help democratize this and, and bring that access to more people. Mm. So when you were talking about earlier um, around, you know, having family members who were doctors and lawyers and, and things and being in that sphere, can you think back to early on in your career? How did you think about mentorship? Did you know, because I know in America, that's something that mentorship, sponsorship, mentorship, sponsorship, like you get beat over the head with it. It's important. We don't know why it's important all the time, but we know that it's important. So in your early stages of your career, did you think about mentorship? And if so, how did you think about it? I did, and, and it's always had a strong influence on my life, but I don't think we put the labels on it. Again, you know, growing up in, in Nigeria, now I think about it, I'm like, oh, well, these women were playing such important roles for me, but we didn't really articulate what those was. It was just, that's how it was. So, mm -hmm. you know, starting from having a mom who was a scientist and with a PhD and, and, and had five kids and also, <laughs> you know, was married and giving back to her community. That's an early example of a role model that showed me what was possible, right? Um, and, you know, aunts and uncles and, and all these folks who were who were going back to graduate school and, and doing really, really well in the different spheres they chose to and always tell me, yeah, of course you're going to do this stuff too. Yeah. When are you doing the GMAT? And when are you, because it wasn't a, it wasn't a, or if it was a when, like mm -hmm. those were all people who were mentoring and coaching because they were showing me the art of what was possible. 
Mm. And then one of my very first managers and my very first job in Lagos, I guarantee Trust Bank, um, it's a lady called Ronke Bameke. I shout her out because you know she was running that ops group that I was a you know first year associate as part of her team. And she was that very first example of somebody who was not related to me, who took a strong interest in my performance, in giving me feedback, in encouraging me to study for the GMAT. <laughs> I'm not party every weekend. And, and when I got in um, to Kellogg to say, yeah, you should absolutely do this, right? Go to America, maybe get some experience, defer your entry, but go, this is going to be great for you. So that was a really mm-hmm. early example of somebody who took an active interest as a mentor and helped create opportunities and, and encouraged me on my path. So yeah, mm-hmm. all the way through over the last 30 years, um, I've had very strong mentors and sponsors who have helped create opportunity and also encouraged me um, to lean into change and um, and really use my God-given talents to the best that I can. Do you think having that level of like uh, investment in you so young impacted your confidence to think that you could do things or is it you were already that girl and it just like confirmed that you were that girl? No, I think I think role models matter. I think environments matter. I think what people are told from the very early ages matter because it just shapes their perception of the opportunities they have. You know, I've said this and and I don't mean to offend anyone when I say this, but I truly believe that one of the advantages I had um, was that I grew up in a different environment. Um, I grew up in a country where everybody largely looked like me (laughs) and I didn't have to deal with a different set of expectations because I was black. And, mm-hmm. and so by the time I showed up in the more Western cultures where you have all these biases and, and challenges around race, my sense of self was already fully formed. So it would be really hard for somebody to tell me that I couldn't do X or I couldn't do Y because I was a black woman. Cause I'd be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, um, so when I think about things that have made a difference for me, um, people, sometimes people say, oh, you grew up in Africa. Oh my gosh, what was that like? And I actually ended up being one of my biggest advantages uh, because I grew up in an environment where excellence was not something that was limited by what I looked like or sounded like. Um, I didn't have to think about race and some of these issues at an early age. Um, and I could grow into the, my full sense of who I wanted to be without societal or cultural limitations. Now, we had issues around gender. <laughs> That's a different conversation. Uh, but race was really off the table. And, and that helped me uh, be a very confident Black woman who doesn't believe that anybody is superior or inferior to me um, and that I'm limited by my ability and interest in competing, not at all by my race or gender. Mm. And Titi, do you have children? Yes, I do. I have two sons. Okay, so this is a conversation that I have with my mom, and I would love your perspective on. So my mom is like you, right? When she immigrated to the U.S., she was a fully formed woman, strong in her identity. And because of that, she didn't necessarily know how to make us be that in a different environment. So as you think about your kids who are not growing up in an environment where everybody kind of looks like them and the the race thing is off the table, how do you prepare them to be fully formed in corporate spaces and in whatever profession that they choose, knowing that the environments that they're in are not your frame of reference. Yeah, yeah, it's a conversation that my husband, who is also from Nigeria, and I have had really right from before we had kids, which is we both grew up in Nigeria. We showed up here to go to business school in our mid-20s. 
um, our sense of self is formed, you know, good, bad, or otherwise, it wasn't perfect, but we were who we were. Um, and then we're raising kids in an environment that has lots of opportunities, um, for sure, much more than where we grew up, but also has some unique challenges. And one of those challenges is about race. Um, and we are visibly black folks, right? Like you see me, there's no doubt between my name and my accent, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my complexion, there is no doubt uh, who I am or what I am. And, and so we talked about that and all the way from even our decisions to name our children, which are, my children both have Yoruba names, I'm Yoruba, I'm, I'm from um, Nigeria. And it was important to us to continue that because our last name, my husband's last name is Cole, um, because you know Nigeria used to be a British colony. So you have all these people with this British type last names. Um, mm -hmm. So it was really important to us actually that our kids had Nigerian first names um, mm -hmm. so that it was clear that they, what they represented and their heritage and, and that would continue to go on. Mm -hmm. but, but to your more specific question, you know, some of the things that we've done is, is we've just educated ourselves more about the realities of African-American life because unfortunately that is actually not a big part of the curriculum when you're growing up in Africa. So there's Correct. a lot that I've learned over the last 25 years living here that I had no clue about, about mm. the realities of immigrants in America, uh, the realities of African-Americans and slavery and all those things and how that continues to play out in some cases into modern life today. So, mm. so the first part was just getting much more educated um, so that I could understand uh, the realities of different parts of the demographics of the country. Um, the second thing that we've done though is, is to be very, very open with them about their heritage and their culture. And while we may live in environments that don't have a lot of people that look like them, being very actively engaged in our communities. Mm -hmm. So that while they may not have many kids that look like them at school, in their home life, in their family life, in the parties and the things that we do in the community, they see that they're not the only, right? Mm -hmm. So so we've mm -hmm. made sure that we have fully immersed them in the Nigerian community <laughs> and the African-American community all the way through um, mm -hmm. because out of that community comes that sense of identity. It's one thing when you laugh at your mom's accent and her cooking and others, but it's really cool when you then hang out with other African kids and you see their parents are all the same and you guys can all <laughs> laugh mm -hmm. and joke. And, and, and the sense of pride they actually get from that is, is sometimes more so from you just telling them, but having some of their peers experience the same thing. Um, Do they speak the language? Yes. So my older son is better at it than my younger son. Uh -huh. um, uh, but what they've really gotten into is as, as Afro culture and Afro pop and, and Nigerian music in particular, which you'll now, you'll hear in a club in London, you'll hear in a club in New York all day long now, mm -hmm. has gotten really mainstream. Um, it's been great to see how globalization and technology has really brought that. So some of their favorite artists, Borna Boy and Nigerian Boy is artists, and Davido and, and the food and the culture, right? So so that part has actually been really great to see. Mm -hmm. And they listen to fella music. They also listen to the roots and we talk about Tupac. So, so it's been good to see as they've gone into their adulthood, them fully embracing, uh, being obviously American kids, but also being Nigerian and also being Yoruba and, and also being, um, being just citizens of the world as well. Mm, love that. And for us, so I had a conversation with my dad and he was like, well, we've lost Liberia. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because we were gone for so long. We don't speak the, none of my siblings speak the language and outside of my parents, there's not a real connection. And so in the next five or so years, 
the goal is to go back as frequently as possible um, to get more um, comfortable being in Liberia, being here, being in Liberia, because when we left, we didn't go back. I didn't go back for 28 years. Mm-hmm. And so the, just the that period, that developmental time that I would have had just isn't there. But that's the goal. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about mistakes for a second. So you have a huge job, right? And you happen to be one of the few Black women at this level in this country. And so everything that you do is under a microscope, right? Everybody's going to have an opinion. It's going to be like, if I do something, my friends will talk about it. If you do something, it's in the papers, right? And so how do you think about taking risks with your career, right? Because you're still wanting to learn and all of those things. And then how do you think about making mistakes? Because I think for a lot of us, especially the younger people, we're so afraid of mistakes that sometimes it, it, it stops us from pursuing things that we made because we don't want people's opinions or whatever the case may be. So how do you think about mistakes and has that changed as you've gotten more senior yeah so i think that the biggest mistake is actually not taking a chance or not taking a bet or being so worried about what others will think that you actually limit yourself right Mm -hmm. so so i've tried to consciously be like well what's the worst that can happen i tend to be a what's the worst that can happen kind of girl so i think one of the biggest mistakes is when we hold ourselves back and, and don't try new things. And I also recognize that it's it's easier now in some ways than it was when I started. Uh, but even when I started, I actually had way less to lose anyway. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I've always thought about, again, back to how I grew up and where I grew up, um, I've always thought about, you know, you have these talents for a reason, right? And your talent could be reading, it could be writing, it could be inspiring others, it could be problem solving, whatever it is. You have these talents for a reason. And we have a fixed period of time when we're, we're in this planet able to impact others. How are we using those talents and how are we using those times? And mm-hmm. how are we finding environments where we can fully deploy that range of talents? Mm-hmm. And, and if we're in places where we can't be authentic self deploying those talents, then we probably need to make a change. And I've mm-hmm. made several changes in my, in my professional career for those reasons, because the need to be authentic and stand in my truth and lead with impact and values, mm-hmm. uh, for me, far outweighs um, any other consideration. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk to, to, to people, especially women, you know, I try to get them to think of the opportunity cost of not leaning in more so than the chance of failure. And mm-hmm. then to say, okay, but what is the worst that can happen, right? If you try this role and it doesn't work out, what is the worst that can happen? Okay, you might lose your job, where you're talented, you're educated, you'll find something else and you'll continue to thrive. Mm. And, and really, quite frankly, some of my biggest leadership lessons have come from mistakes or experiences that haven't gone as I thought they would. But even in those really difficult times, there have been incredible leadership lessons and sometimes just what you won't do as a leader that mm. one has been able to take from those. Mm. And you talk about talents though. So we've interviewed at this point, like a hundred and something black women, executive senior. So we only talked to VP level and above. And of all those women, only three of them have said that they don't suffer from imposter syndrome, right? So even when we have the credentials, when we have the proof of performance and all of those things, like there's still something that that makes us feel like maybe our talents are not what we thought or somebody's going to, to find out. So have you ever dealt with imposter syndrome and how do you manage that and still push through to take the risk and make those decisions when you have a voice in your head that's like, they're going to find out that I'm not as good or whatever that case may be. Yeah. So again, I think I don't really relate to that, but I think it's because I didn't grow up here. Mm -hmm. And I had a mom who was killing it. I have an aunt who's a 
Kata Genius Grant, you know, all my sisters, like literally, my aunt the is the pressure. The University of Chicago. She's a professor of oncology at University of Chicago. She's a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. Like that is my dad's sister. So my point is, because I was very fortunate um, to be born in a family of super high achievers, hmm. I haven't had a lot of the, oh, I'm not good enough because I'm like, well, it's the same gene pool. <laughs> So let's compete. But what I have had, though, in my mind is is the whole rumination piece, right, mm-hmm. which is something that women also deal with, which is we tend to be like if somebody says something didn't work or something, then you go over and over and like, oh, my God, this is bad. This is fatal. How could this happen? Um, mm-hmm. And I've had to learn to let it go. Right. Like the frozen song, I just let it go because it's really not all about you. Things happen. Sometimes it's about you, but a lot of times it's not about you. It might be the other person, what they're going through, their own biases, their own stereotypes, their own issues. Mm -hmm. And if you let it impact you, then it can lead you into a negative spiral of either self-doubt or questioning yourself or or just focusing on your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And, And so my biggest thing has been less around the imposter thing, but it's the letting it go and say, you know what, maybe it's not about me. Right. Maybe they've got their own issues that they're projecting <laughs> that's showing up. And I'm not going to let you take up the space in my head. Right. Mm-hmm. And lead me to doubt myself. I'm just going to let it go and move along. Mm-hmm. That and in particular is what I've, I've had to really work on. What helps you let it go? I sometimes think about the song. <laughs> and then somebody said, you know, you're ruminating like a cow. I think about a cow that just recycles the grass and chews it and chews it and chews it. Um, and then as I've gotten older, I've been like, okay, so fine. I guess, you know, that was not a win, right? So some of it was age and maturity over time, but also self-awareness about that behavior that says that is so not productive. Like, why am I replaying this thing that went wrong two weeks ago in my mind over and over again? The yeah. odds that nobody else even remembers and I'm still trying to replay what I could have done differently, right? So, mm-hmm. so being self-aware about that, that tendency to ruminate um, mm-hmm. has helped me get to, okay, TD, it's write it down, write down your lessons, and then you need to move on. Mm. And you talked a little bit earlier about the importance of um, feeling like you need to be your authentic self wherever you are. What does that mean for you? So, so for me, it means um, environments where there's not a big normative, like everybody's supposed to show up a certain way. Because if you have environments where oh, this is what's done and this is how it's said, by definition, that means like everybody's filtering to try to conform. So, mm-hmm. so it's like sensing for, you know, strong cultures matter, but strong cultures shouldn't be about everybody similar. So, mm. so I look for markers like why are they all dressing the same and why are they all <laughs> the same and why are we saying, well, this is how we disagree and let me give you the history lesson. Those are actually flares and warning signs that these environments may not value authenticity because there's such a normative tendency to get everybody the same. And for me, authenticity shows up in um, a willingness to engage at all levels in the organization. So I'm the kind of leader where If you're telling me I can only go to certain places and only speak to certain people and people need appointments and I need to follow a script, that doesn't work because I want to be able to engage with all levels of my organization with an open door policy. Mm -hmm. Authenticity for me also means speaking up, speaking up for people that I support and advocate for and things that are great, but Mm -hmm. also speaking truth to power about Mm -hmm. ways that we can be better in a Mm -hmm. constructive way. Uh, but in a place where I feel like my voice is wanted, not just heard, but actually wanted and solicited and heard, 
Mm-hmm. And and environments that that don't want to hear about opportunities to do better are environments where people like me will struggle, um, mm-hmm. because because I I feel like we're here for a reason and and that part of that reason is having an impact and helping make things better, mm-hmm. and it doesn't mean we're always right, uh, but we should get all the voices on the table. Mm-hmm. And I think like people listening to this are going to be like, yeah, she just described corporate America where you have to be a certain way, you have to look a certain thing, and. I know for a lot of the women who listen, there's a struggle of feeling like maybe I don't belong. And I don't think, I think that if people want to work in corporate, there's a place for you. And so how do you, what would you say to that young black girl or early career woman who's saying, you know, yeah, she, all the things that she said, that's been my corporate experience. Like, what would you say to her? Yeah, I would say push back and keep looking till you find the environment because you absolutely belong. You know, I, I am almost six foot. My name is Titi. I didn't change my name. <laughs> my accent, you hear me like she's from somewhere, right? Uh, obviously black woman, right? And and I've been able to have over 25 you know, years now of experience at, at the highest levels, all the way from, you know, after business school, starting at McKinsey. So yes, now not every culture is as progressive. Not every industry is as progressive. I would actually say financial services because more and more we think about our consumers um, and not homogeneous uh, is becoming much more progressive than maybe it was 20, 30 years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And there is absolutely room and interest for the full range of expression. So mm-hmm. I've been in meetings with, with sisters that rock Afros. <laughs> we have sisters that wear dreads at the highest levels of the organization. We have um, Hispanic leaders who are openly, um, who speak in Spanish mostly, and they're welcomed at the table. Um, we have LGBT leaders who do excellent job at all levels of the organization. And it's not just at City, but I would say things are changing. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a stronger realization that, that we have to allow, create enabling environments for everyone. Mm-hmm. Our consumer bases are not homogeneous at all. Mm-hmm. And, and your power is actually in your authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have to spend a lot of time trying to conform and filter yourself, you actually lose your effectiveness. So I would say continue to lean into your power. And, and if you're in an environment where they're telling you you can't be who you, who you are, then it's time to find a different environment. Mm-hmm. And you um, have an impressive resume, like you've done all of the things. Um, and for most people at one of those jobs, they would have said, yes, I'm here for life, but you've left, right? And as you're thinking about your career progression, what you want from it, when do you know or how do you know that it's time to move on to a new opportunity? So a new opportunity sometimes is within the same company. Other mm-hmm. times it's outside of the company. Mm-hmm. I have not had the privilege of 30 years at one place. I, I'm sure that would be great, <laughs> right? Like, like you never have to be the new person apart from once and figure out where the bathrooms are. Um, I haven't had that privilege. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I've also had the opportunity to have networks that are incredibly extensive. Uh, one of the people in my network introduced me to you watching, right? Because we had worked together. Um, so the benefit of actually working in different places, you see different things, you have an incredible network, and you have a much broader perspective versus a more, in some ways, insular perspective from only having been in one company. Mm-hmm. And for me, the signs of when it's time to do something different, and it doesn't mean change company, it might be change roles. For me, is when I'm no longer learning. Mm. If I'm no longer learning or if I'm in an environment where I don't feel like I'm supported and valued and I can be my authentic self, those are my two markers for change. Mm-hmm. Um, and the learning piece is because that's how I grow. 
Um, that's how I stay motivated and challenged and not bored. And, and so it's been doing different roles in, in sometimes in the same company, going from PL roles now to operations roles, right? That allows me to learn and grow. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's different geographies, uh, sometimes it's special projects. So it doesn't have to mean change jobs, but sometimes mm -hmm. it's meant change jobs because I've gotten as far as I could go in mm -hmm. that organization. And it didn't mean it wasn't a great organization, uh, mm -hmm. but you're giving maybe the scope of the work that they did. And at my age at that point, I had hit as high as I was going to hit. And mm -hmm. I'm back to confidence in self. I knew I had so much more I could give. And those opportunities just weren't at the company. And, and so then the right way professionally, it's time to move on. But your networks persist and your friendships persist. Mm -hmm. So I always tell people, don't feel like, oh, I can't go because this is the only place that knows me. Um, the things that make you good at what you do are 80, 90% you. And those are very portable if you find the right next environment yeah. um, so don't stay in a company out of a false sense of oh I can't be successful somewhere else stay because you're learning and you're growing and you're being developed and you feel like you have one way there but don't stay out of a sense of the fear of change um, yeah. because the things that make you great are incredibly portable and yeah. you put in the hard work you'll learn about the people you'll learn where the bathrooms are and you'll continue to grow and thrive um, so talking about network, so networking, I will say, is one of my least favorite things. Um, I've found ways to make it work. I have a, a network that I think is great, but especially if you're a first generation, or you're an immigrant, your parents didn't grow up here. So my parents couldn't give me, I didn't inherit a robust network, right? They came and they were already adults. They thought they were going to be here for 18 months. So they didn't necessarily, my dad is one of the people that you talked about privilege, had the privilege of working for the same company for 30 years, right? He interned there and he never left until he was done working. And so everything that I learned about building a network in America, you know, has been very much trial and error. And I've been fortunate to be part of programs that have helped, but it's a challenge for people, right? And, and networking with people in corporate who may not look like you, who you may think you don't have anything in common with, icebreakers, all of the weirdness. And, and so it's a challenge. How have you thought about growing your network and the level of investment that you have to make in order to maintain relationships within your network. Yeah. So as I thought about it, you know, when I came here, I went to business school, you know, I didn't have a, oh, here are all my pals from undergrad <laughs> and we're all together. Right. And I also didn't have a, oh, and here are all my parents' friends who know who I am, who can connect me because my parents' friends and my parents lived in Nigeria and here I was in Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, but then I had my siblings and I had my father's siblings who were already established here. Um, you know, for me, the, the way the networking piece, because early on, it was also daunting, like, oh, my gosh, I have to talk to strangers. Um, but I found that if I tied it into my innate curiosity about others and tied it to my innate um, interest in connecting people, I enjoy connecting people. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, it felt less like working, something I had to go work. And more about, oh, this person should know this person, right? So, mm -hmm. so if I think about what's made my network grow and thrive, it's because at every stage, people that I have actually genuinely enjoyed. So I, I'm not the kind of person that rolls up to like a super senior leader and just say, hey, I want to network with you. No, it tends to be people I've actually either worked with or genuinely enjoyed time with, uh, I keep in touch with them. And any opportunity to help them, I, I do. Um, I reach out when I, if I'm reading something and it has something that reminds me of someone, I'll send it and say, hey, this reminded me of you, or, um, oh, this is interesting. I saw this about your company or, you know, your kid is in this school. Well, this is right. So 
So a healthy curiosity in people and connecting people has helped me get my network to thrive. Mm. And then in corporate environments, it's been more through working together and then finding, again, back to authenticity, you know, being open about the things that matter to me. So mm. if you ever worked with me, you know about my boys. I talk about my boys a lot. I talk about Lagos. I talk about Nigeria. I talk about running. Um, mm. I talk about yoga, right? So I'm open about the things that are important to me in my life. Um, mm. And that shared humanity helps you make connections to, with mm. people who on the surface, you might have nothing in common with, but you find out they're also a runner. And then all of a sudden you were talking about what was your race this weekend, or you find out that they like to do yoga, or you they find out they also travel to Australia. So I would say, try to find um, the common interests mm. and then build bonds based on common interests and then just keep in touch and any opportunity to help someone always take it. And then mm. that just feeds on itself. And then you end up with this network that doesn't really feel like work, it's more about keeping up with people that you genuinely care about or you share something in common with. Mm. Um, so one of the things that I have been learning to be better at, so I'm an African woman and African women communicate in a very specific way, right? Yes, and we are very direct, <laughs> um, but sometimes that can be misinterpreted in the corporate space. So for you, how have you thought about, you know, the stereotypes around, well, I don't want to be seen as an angry black or whatever the case may be. How has that shaped or has it shaped the way that you communicate or have changed your communication style? Yes. So to your point, um, and I don't want to label, but but yes, you know, I communicate very, very similarly to a lot of my friends <laughs> who I grew up with. I communicate very similarly to most of my sisters. So so there is definitely an African woman communication style, especially yes. African women who grew up in African households, either in Africa or outside of Africa. Mm -hmm. Right. And and that communication style can be viewed as a little more, you know, quote unquote, aggressive, direct, whatever. Um, and, and, and I probably got a little bit of feedback about it earlier on in my career, but, but I've also gotten feedback actually quite recently, which makes me smile. Um, now, what I've had to do was um, early on, the feedback was it was actually coming up in terms of intensity. Right, so I'm a naturally passionate person. Again, I think African women, we communicate very directly and also very passionately, and we're very expressive. Like we use our full face <laughs> and our hands, right? And that communicates a, a level of intensity uh, that in corporate settings, people are like, are you upset? And I'm like, no, I'm just really excited about this, right? <laughs> So what I what I started to do, especially when I either switched jobs or or had a new team, is is I actually invested heavily in kind of that team assimilation, leader assimilation, and I would share about myself to say, look, I'm super passionate about what I do. If I have an actual problem, I will tell you I have a problem. Don't take my passion, my energy to say, woo, it means that there's a fire. It just means I care about this stuff, right? So part of it is just actually breaking down the barriers and helping people understand you better. Mm -hmm. um, the second piece though is also, you know, I got feedback early on about levels of intensity. And, and that part was true because, because early in my career, I was a much more intense leader focused on this has to be great. You know, every single deliverable has to be perfect. We have to be the best team. Um, because I think it was that sense of, I got a lot to prove in corporate America. And, mm -hmm. and I had an executive coach who told me, look, honey, your 100% is like 150%. <laughs> <laughs> right? 
for most people. And, and what that means, and I'm thinking, well, that means I'm great. <laughs> she said, no, no, no. What that means is it's exhausting. It can be <laughs> exhausting for others. And it just feels very kind of perfectionist, which could run out your teams. Mm-hmm. And she told me, she said, you need to take some of that energy and divert it to other things outside of work. Mm. And she was absolutely right. That's when I started exercising on a more regular basis mm. because I had just a ton of energy that I, if I just took some of that energy to other things, things I do in the community, things I do outside of work, exercising at the start of the day, it actually allowed me to show up with probably better modulated energy for the corporate environments I was in. So mm-hmm. there is that piece about self-awareness of just modulating your energy and your levels of intensity. Yes, I've stayed direct. Yes, I've stayed authentic. Yes, I've been an open communicator, but I'm probably less intense, which is actually more effective uh, Mm -hmm. than probably where I started, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Mm. But the other thing, though, I think I've also felt very empowered to do, um, and I encourage folks to do is also call what I would call the BS, call the labels, call the stereotypes. And I have conversations with people say, would you say that to a white man? And, 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 and sometimes people are taken aback that you call it and said, help me understand that piece of feedback, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, we're in a world now where we have to be much more aware of cultural differences um, and also the race, um, the stereotypes and biases that, that exist around gender and race in corporate America. Mm-hmm. And sometimes folks just don't even know that they have these biases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I call it out. I call it out with my peers. I call it out in my environments. I call it out with my team to say, why are we assuming that because she's soft-spoken, not me, means that she's not as good or is not as engaged? Or, no, it just means that she's culture, She's more soft-spoken, mm-hmm. right? Or, or why mm-hmm. are we assuming that because he's, he's, he's loud about an issue means that he's upset? So I think, I think more now than ever, I think we should all feel very empowered to call out some of these stereotypes and biases and say, yes, feedback is constructive is good, but if it's rooted in a place of bias and stereotypes around race and gender, I think respectfully and professionally, we should call it out and help people uncover their biases so they can show up more balanced in the workplace. So if there's a coordinator or a manager who's listening to this, they're probably like, yeah, TT, you can do that because you're the boss. You can call people out. Like, what power do I have, you know, early or middle career? What would you say to that girl? I would say you have power because if you don't, then you're enabling the environment and you're going to get frustrated anyway, and then you're going to leave. So if, if the exit is the, the end state, why don't you try to change it? And, and there are ways to do it. And I, and I did it even earlier on. And it, does, it absolutely doesn't have to be confrontational. I almost always do it in a one-on-one setting, right? Because you don't want to embarrass people. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you just go from a place of humanity. This is how this made me feel, or this mm-hmm. is what I heard. And sometimes just allowing people time to reflect on the words they used will automatically lead to some of the correction. And sometimes mm-hmm. people just need to know that you're watching, right? So I would say, yes, please do it. Do it professionally, do it one-on-one, do it with humor. Sometimes I use humor, right? Well, without humor, there's a the message. Um, so figure out what's the right way to do it, yeah. but, but don't wait till you're a senior or don't wait till you're frustrated and then you end up leaving because mm-hmm. then the opportunity to help drive change and actually thrive in that environment was lost. Or even there's more awareness now and hopefully more receptivity, more organizations that say you can't just blow that off. 
you actually need to listen to what that person is trying to tell you mm-hmm. and, and, and hopefully adapt. And even worse, don't wait to the place where you then blow up, right? Because exactly. a lot of the times we suppress, we suppress, we suppress, and then something that's really small is the last straw, and, and then you do you a lot off. more exactly. damage than you would have if you'd have just said, "Hey, repeating back to somebody, can you help me understand?" And and not saying help me understand to antagonize, saying help me understand because you really are trying to understand what they meant by what it is that they said. Exactly. Um, I think makes a, a a huge difference. Exactly. So the last question before the lightning round. So you touched on this a little bit um, before. So you have a huge job. You have a whole husband. You got two whole kids. You <laughs> run and you're doing all this stuff. How do you make sure that you don't get lost in all of the stuff, right? I think we we hear about work-life integration. And the truth is, it's hard, regardless of like where you are. If you are senior or are incredibly ambitious, it's hard. And so what do you do to make sure that you still remain a priority in your life? Yeah, so so I was I tell people I don't know if it's balance. It's probably more like integration and juggling. Um, and if and I always say this to women: if you are a woman who wants to have children and also a career, right? Not everybody wants that, but if you are one of those folks, uh, one of the most important career decisions you'll make is your choice of partner, mm. right? Because your choice of partner, regardless of gender. <laughs> your choice of partner will either enable or challenge your ability to raise your family and have that successful career. So I was fortunate in, in choosing, although I wasn't as intentional about that piece, but now looking back, I was, I've been very fortunate to be married for over 22 years to, to a husband who was just as excited. My kids are 18 and 20. Yeah, girl, I'm, I'm, I'm almost 50, so <laughs> I'm up there. I've been married for 22 years um, to my husband, but, but I'm fortunate to marry a man who is just as excited about my career success as I am, who is mm-hmm. just as hands-on, maybe even more so with my boys than I've been, and who was willing to make some trade-offs and sacrifices in his career trajectory to support mine. Right. Mm. So having that equal partnership to the extent that one can define it that way was one of the most critical pieces that allowed me to grow and thrive and be who I am because I didn't have to worry about family support or would my husband support the move or do I have to be the one doing everything at home. So I tell women, if you are intending to have children, um, be very, be very intentional about your choice of partner and have conversations about how do they feel about women in the workplace and family structures and and roles and things like that, because that can either enable or make Mm -hmm. it really challenging for you to accelerate your career. Um, And then in terms of finding time for myself, you know, I, again, I had an early executive coach when my kids were like one and three, and she was like, look, you can't be super mom. You can't do it all for yourself. And you can't give if you don't have. So she, she told me, said, get up every morning and go work out. If you have to go at 4.30 a.m., which is what she did, she said, go, because at 4.30 a.m., nobody's looking for you. Yeah. Generally, yeah. your company isn't looking for you. Your kids are still asleep. Your husband is still asleep. That time is yours. Hmm. At 6 p.m., everybody's looking for you. Because they're and hungry. You got me in that habit of, of early in the morning before, you know, it's my time. I go to bed early as a result. But I'm mm-hmm. up, I exercise, which is my way to give back to myself. Mm-hmm. And then and then I come back and then I wake up the kids when they were younger and then get them ready and we get out the door. But I've had that time for myself. Mm-hmm. So she taught me early on to be unapologetic or finding the time for the things that will allow me to fill myself back up. And then I can give to my husband, to my children, to my work, to my community. 
Um, I lied. One more question because you said something. So the fact that you've been married for almost 20 years blows my mind because how? Um, so I guess if one thing that you would say helps keep a marriage to last that long, what would it be? Or maybe there's something that people romanticize about marriage that you wish they didn't. Um, because I think when you're not married and you haven't been there, you have all these ideas of what it means to be married, right? And then you get into a relationship, not even married, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. What, what is this? What is happening? Right? And so for someone who's had it for this long, like, what do you wish people knew or maybe like a misconception about what it takes to actually have a marriage that lasts? Yeah. So we've been married 22 years and we just say every day by his grace. And, and I think I would just have people to say it's, it takes, you know, marriage is about friendship and a partnership. Marriages that are rooted in a friendship and a partnership generally last longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just about the, the highs and the lows or the emotion early on, but it's that genuine friendship and partnership. Those generally last longer. That's what we found. Um, mm-hmm. And then you also have to work at it, right? I, it's not one of those that's things where you don't, you, you, it's, not, it's like a plant. You kind of got to tend it, right? You got to make time for each other. You got to make sure that you don't grow apart. Otherwise, like you, you get to the point where the kids are off to college and you're like, who is this person? I don't even like them anymore, right? So, mm-hmm. So, so we, again, it's every day is by his grace. So, so I never claim to be like perfect at all, but, mm-hmm. but it's like every day you have to think about what have I done? You know, it might be the little gestures. It might be calling them. It might be whatever, but, but you have to continue to show that person that they are important to you. And, mm-hmm. and one of my friends said, you know, one of the best gifts you can give your children, if you choose to go down that path is actually coming out of a loving, happy home. Right. Mm-hmm. And then having that early example of a loving relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always tell women, don't think, oh, I got to prioritize the kids and the husband will sort himself out because actually you're helping the kids by investing in that relationship with the partner. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's working at it every day, making sure that person knows that they do matter to you. And it's not perfect by any means. I, I'm not claiming to have a perfect marriage, but it's it's on a basis of friendship and a true partnership. Oh, I love that. Friendship and partnership, people, not how fine he is or how fine she is. Yeah, because at some point they become less fine with age anyway. (laughs) Even (laughs) us women, right? Like, you know, 30 years ago, it was a different story. (laughs) Um, So we're going to go to the lightning round. First thing that comes to mind, don't think too much about it. Um, What's one piece of career advice you wish you had gotten earlier in your career? I would say play to your strengths. I spent way too much time trying to work on my weaknesses. <laughs> Play to your strengths. It's so much easier that way. Hmm. What's the career lesson that took you the longest to learn, but has had the biggest impact on your career? You know, in terms of the lesson um, that's taking me the longest to term is, is make sure you're carving out time to think and, and to really plan strategically. You know, I, I early on tended to be, I want to be really busy and have 800 things going on at the same time. Uh, but, but busy work actually reduces your ability to focus and be much more strategic and intentional. So I've been more intentional now about carving out time to think and plan things more strategically and not get on the high of getting so many deliverables done, but just be more thoughtful and intentional and strategic. Mm. What's one book that you could read over and over again? Ah, one book. Um, you know, I don't know if it's one, but you know, one of my favorite authors is Joyce Carol Oates. She's got like 58 books. I would read anything. Like if I go to like a new book by her, I'm going to get it. I would read anything that she writes. She's got short stories. She's got poems. She's got books. 
Um, but she just is such an amazing writer and, and brings characters. I have characters are almost always women as the lead uh, character, which I relate to. And um, she just has a way of bringing them to life and, and showing the realities that they face and, and how they grow. And then the last question, we know that all decisions about your career are going to be made when you are not in the room. So what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room? When I'm not in the room, I hope they're saying that she's a values-driven leader. Um, she cares about what we do, about the purpose behind what we do. Um, she leans in hard on how do we build strong teams. And, and quite frankly, she just pushes us every day to do better and be better. Mm, I love that. And with that, thank you so much, Gigi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, I told you guys that TT was amazing and literally this uh, this episode was such a blessing. It made me think about a lot of things in life that I think I've been kind of toying around with, but the three things that I want to end this episode with, because you all know that I always do my top three, um, and the first one is around um, letting things go. I think that there are a lot of times professionally where something goes wrong. I'm type A, I'm a perfectionist, and something goes wrong and I let it consume me for longer than it probably should or longer than it is productive. So I'm going to start singing the frozen song, let it go whenever I feel like I've been um, holding on to something for too long. The second thing is around the intensity of communication, right? And not necessarily changing the message, but changing the level of intensity or altering the level of intensity so that what you are saying can be heard and so that you can get the results that you want. And I know for a lot of us, right? black women especially, we are passionate in how we communicate. And so thinking through the level of intensity and the messaging that we are communicating and what is going to be the most impactful. Um, and then the last thing, the third point that, you know, towards the end of the episode that was a major gem was around the importance of your partner as you think about career success. Now, I'd heard this from married women before. Um, I'd heard this from divorced women before. I've heard this from widowed women before. But just like being very intentional about who you choose to spend the rest of your life with because it impacts every aspect of your life. It impacts your career, definitely. And so being very, very intentional about looking at what it is that you're considering in a partner when you think about lifelong relationships. Um, those are what I got, but would love to hear what you got from the episode. As always, if you wanna keep the conversation going, you can connect with us on Instagram at I Choose a Ladder, on Facebook at I Choose a Ladder, on LinkedIn at I Choose a Ladder. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. And until next time, thank you for listening.